0: It's on page 1002 in your pew Bible if you would like to follow along starting at verse 14 after John was put in prison Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God the time has come he said the kingdom of God is near repent and believe the good news as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen come follow me Jesus said and I will make you fishers of men at once they left their nets and followed him when he'd gone a little further he saw James son of Zebedee and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets without delay he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases, he also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was.
1: And folks, please have that passage open before you there, John chapter 1, page 1002. I'm really excited today. I've been excited all week, um, anticipating uh, being here at this moment because I get to do the thing that I love most in all the world, and that's to talk about Jesus. Um, I love preaching from the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. So um, those of you who have been around for a while will know that I would have a Gospel series nearly every year at Kirkpatrick. But I was thinking as I was preparing, I thought, it feels like a long time. So right enough, I had a look. Last year, uh, I preached a series in Colossians in the period between Christmas and and Easter. And I, I loved that. It was great. But I didn't get to preach a gospel series. So it's nearly two years, and I'm just delighted to be back in a gospel talking about Jesus. Monty got us off to a really great start uh, last week in a sermon he called Getting Started with Jesus. And he, he guided us, keep an eye on the text, the the very first verses of the, the chapter of Mark's gospel uh, as I remind you. He called the sermon Getting Started with Jesus. He guided us through Mark's explosive start to the gospel. He's really very quick out of the blocks, Mark. And what he's wanting to do is very quickly build a picture of the identity of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ Christ. Uh, the Son of God, as he calls him. And he puts three strands of this evidence, uh, of this identity building in right at the start of the gospel. A human prophet, John the Baptist, talks about who he is, uh, the the very voice of God, his Father from heaven. And then even his interaction with Satan, in a way, is is contributing to this sense of his, his unique identity. This is no ordinary person, we're encountering here. Monty went on to talk about life with Jesus in terms of a waltz, a one, two, three. You might remember, repent, believe, fight. Repent, believe, fight. Uh, Those elements were all in that first 13 verses. And he asked us as he closed his sermon to consider whether we're ready to receive this Jesus to repent knowing that our sins won't be held against us, to believe knowing that it's God himself who's extending his grace to us, and third, fight knowing that the result isn't in doubt and that we've nothing to fear from even the forces of hell that we read about in that opening chapter. So all of that just as a, a quick recap on where we started last week, I thought I'd take one minute just before I dive in today to, to put this series into a, a sort of a bigger context. We've called it King's Cross, and you may of course know that King's Cross is a railway station in London. You, you maybe read about it in the Harry Potter books. Extra 80s points, there won't be many people will get this, but extra 80s points for anybody who remembers the Pet Shop Boys song. King's Cross, 1987. Anybody? Yeah? One? Two? Uh, You need to be really on your 80s game to be hitting those sort of heights. Um, Forget about the train station, the Pet Shop Boys, and Harry Potter. This has nothing to do with any of those. But the title, when I saw it, I couldn't resist. It's a brilliant, snappy summary of Mark's Jesus biography. The reason I say that is that Mark's biography reads in two symmetrical parts. The first half, the first eight chapters of Mark's biography deal with Jesus' identity. Okay? Who is this? The remaining eight chapters deal with the purpose of Jesus. Why did he come? So who is this? He's the king. Why did he come? To go to the cross, king's cross if you, there it is, in two words, I was going to say you can take the next 15 weeks off. Don't come and be with us. Learn about the king and learn about his cross. This morning, we're just going to look very straightforward. The the verses that we read, 14 to 34, and we're going to think about three things. Jesus' work, his message, and his call. Okay, I'm going to, get you involved, go into Bible study mode for a second. Look back over those verses, 14 to 34. Just skim over them and see if you can work out what Jesus' work was, okay? What did Jesus actually spend his time doing? If you had to summarize it, if you had to give him a a job description, forget for a moment that you know that he's the savior of the world, that he's come to die on the cross, What did people actually see him doing? I'll give you a few seconds to see if you can come up with some answers. Okay, I saw two things and I'm wondering if you saw them as well. Did you see that he was a teacher? Verses 14 and 15 tell us about him preaching around Galilee. Verse 21, a very specific preaching, teaching incident in the synagogue at Capernaum. Verse 27, judging by reaction of the crowd, he was a brilliant teacher. We have never heard the like of this. People are saying, so he's a teacher. But teaching's not the only thing that Jesus is doing in these verses. Did, did you get the second thing? Did you see that he was a healer? Verses 23 to 26, heals a man with an evil spirit. Verses 30 to 31, heals Simon's mother-in-law with a fever. Again, verse 27, this amazed the people. So news about this teacher healer is is spreading like wildfire throughout Galilee. Uh, And Mark's not alone. If you read the other gospel writers, quite often near the start of their gospel, they'll throw in a summary verse where they'll tell you what Jesus did. Uh, Matthew, for example, chapter 4, he says, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. There it is. That's what he did. He taught and he healed. Worth thinking about just for a second, isn't it? Sometimes we're wondering what we should do with our lives, Um, and collectively as a church, we wonder, you know, what should we do? How do we reach out to the community? What about just keeping our work? in complete continuity with the work of Jesus, teaching and healing. That would make us into people who tell others about Jesus and people who demonstrate this love of Jesus that we talk about in in healing actions, in helping healing ways. And that's it. Now, when I say that's it, that makes it sound like that's not a lot. That's a whole lot. That's a lifetime's work right there to enter into. But we don't need to be looking for other strange and wonderful things to do. Teaching and healing. Those would be great things for us to be involved in. We're gonna think more about the healing next week because the, the passage will allow us to do that. So I want instead, our second thing we're gonna look at this morning is Jesus' message, this teaching he was doing. What did he actually teach? Well, there's one verse in our passage that I think gives us almost everything that we need by way of a summary. Verse 15, here's what he was preaching around Galilee. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So we get a handle on Jesus' Preaching with with just this verse, three ideas I want to look at very quickly. The good news, kingdom of God, need to repent. The good news. Let's uh, let's do what we don't do very often in Kirkpatrick Memorial, and that is do a bit of um, Bible languages stuff. Let's go back to the Greek text. The Greek word here that's translated as good news is this word on the screen, the euangelion. And it's a compound word. It's things stuck together. So the angelion, that simply means the news or the message. So guess what? In the Bible, if God sends a messenger to his people, that messenger is called a what? An angelios, an angel a messenger from God. So the message is the angelion. But this isn't just an angelion in our passage. It's a, a euangelion. What difference does that we prefix make? Well, in the Greek, if you add that eu to the, the front of any word, it turns it into a, a joyful whatever. So we now have the euangelion as joyful news, the news that brings joy. This message Jesus brought puts a smile on our face. That's what it is. He's come to bring a message to put a smile on your face. When when we hear the word gospel, by the way, the word gospel is, is the English way we would translate that. We tend to think of it in religious or spiritual terms, but actually, In in the days when Mark's writing, that's not really how it functioned in the society. Very commonplace. So, for example, historians had discovered an ancient Roman inscription from round about the time of Jesus and Mark. And it says this, The beginning of the Gospel of Caesar Augustus. Wow. The Gospel of Caesar Augustus. And then it goes on to tell the story of the birth and the coronation of a Roman emperor. So the gospel isn't a very spiritual or mystical kind of a word. It's quite a concrete word. The gospel then is an announcement of something that's really happened in history that's been done for you that's going to change your life. So remember that Roman inscription. Go Look back to verse, chapter 1 verse 1. See what Mark does? I don't know if he's ripping off the Roman inscription or they're ripping him off. I, I don't know. It's the same. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. This is, I'm going to tell you, Mark says, about a historical event that's going to change your life. And it's going to put a smile on your face. I suppose my question, just just need to pause as I teach my way through this. Has the gospel done that yet? Is it changing your life? If not, why not? If you're not sure what it is, listen up because we're going to think more. So Jesus is inviting these people to believe the euangelion, the good news, the gospel. And what exactly is this good news that he's asking them to believe? The, The great news that Jesus wants people to believe is that the kingdom of God is near. I bet you that's not the gospel that was preached to you when you were a kid. It's funny, isn't it? A lot of us had the gospel preached to us, but people didn't tell us that it was that the kingdom of God is near. This is what Jesus said is the gospel. You see, folks, whenever God created us, what happens is the king of the universe gives us a life and he says, Christoph, all you folks there in Kirkpatrick Memorial in East Belfast, you all get to be my regents. I will rule this world and you will rule it under me with my delegated authority. We'll be friends. We'll work together and you alongside me will rule this world. It was a beautiful arrangement. You read about it in Genesis 1 and 2, and you get this beautiful picture of a world in harmony and God in harmony with us. But it's not not the way the world went, is it? You see, we didn't want that arrangement. We didn't want a world where God is king and we rule under him. We wanted a world where we are king and don't have much to do with his rule at all. And you can read about that in Genesis chapter 3, and you can read about how the whole world unravels. The whole story then of the Old Testament becomes a story of a, a people longing once more for a good king. If you know the story, you'll know a little how it goes when the the people of God are formed, when they're brought into the promised land, there's a period where they don't have kings, where they have judges, a a crazy and assorted bunch for the most part. And when they finally did have kings, those kings, statistically, if you do the statistics, most of them led them further away from God rather than closer to him. So the Bible's telling a story of people who are longing for a king, And it's a story that we still understand. I mean, don't you just wish there was one person on the election card this week? Just one that you thought you could back? Folks, we're looking for a king. We're living beyond the borders of the kingdom, but we'd still love more than anything else to be brought back in. This longing for a king, by the way, this, this, is, this is a human instinct that's embedded in all the legends of, of the many cultures. They all have stories that talk about their longing for a king. A true king is going to come back. What's he going to do? He's going to slay the dragon or he's going to kiss us and wake us out of our sleep of death or he's going to rescue us from our imprisonment in the dungeon. He's going to marry us, and then he's going to lead us to live with him happily ever after. That's what the world's longing for. And that's why we tell these stories. A true king who'll come back, and he'll take everything that's wrong and make it right. This is why the gospel would put a smile on your face. Because he's come, Jesus says, the good news the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom's here, and you can be in it. The king has come, and his name is Jesus. Folks, um, some of you already have responded to Jesus Christ, you know about this. Um, as I've been reading this and thinking about it again, I've been thinking, goodness, do I, do I really feel like a citizen of, a, of the, the, the kingdom? Do I know the joy that that, that offers? Um, some of us don't yet know that. So I'm inviting people to think about that. What would it look like to come and live life under the King? Some of us have friends who don't know much about that. I'm just reaching for our, our carol service invitation. It's, it's wonderful how the, the theme that we've chosen for this Christmas ties in with what we're talking about today. We've called our, our Christmas this year the coming of a king. You have friends, family members, you have people around you who are living life outside of the kingdom of God. They're living life that we're never created for. And we get a chance to tell them the good news about the king. Let's find a way to do that. Third element of Jesus' message, very quickly, repent. Repent's one of those churchy-sounding words, but actually, again, its its basic meaning is very simple. You'll have heard me say this before if you've been here for any length of time. It means to turn around. And in, in the context of, of Jesus' preaching, it, it For me, it it just makes a whole lot of sense. Think about it for a second. Set aside for a moment that stuff. If you think repent means feeling sorry for your sins, put put that aside. I don't think that's a, a very clear way of thinking about what we're talking about here today. Here's a better way, I think. If there is a good and loving king, and if I'm living outside of his kingdom, then I'm missing out on the life that I was created for. And that's bad news. If someone comes then and says that the king has come and that he's opened his borders and that he's welcoming people in to be with him, to be in his kingdom, that's, that's, that's a euangelion. That's news to put a smile on anybody's face. That's news that could change my life. What do I do with that news? I repent I recognize that living life outside of the kingdom hasn't gone as well as I imagined it might. I recognize that being in a far off country, not being with my king is something I no longer want to do. I turn around. I repent. And I head for home. Folks, I... I just need to ask you, have you done that yet? Are you still living beyond the borders of the kingdom of God when the king has come and he said, there's good news, I'm here, you can come back in. That's what Jesus preaches, repent and believe the good news. Folks, we've thought briefly about his, Jesus' work and his message. We're gonna finish with a quick look at Jesus' call. Um, if I've one regret about this, these sermons, we're probably trying to cover a lot of ground, but it, it's, Mark's gospel's like that. It's breathless. He puts a whole lot into short spaces of teaching. To listen to some preachers, you would think that when a person repents and believes in Jesus, their life on this earth is over. Repent and believe in Jesus. Your sins are forgiven and you're ready for heaven. And there's not a whole lot to say about what happens in between. So repenting and believing in Jesus is kind of the end of the story. Not with Jesus. With Jesus, repenting and believing is the beginning of the story. Because he then presents us with his call Verses 16 to 20. Have a look. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for there were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll make you fishers at men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Did this story never strike you as weird? Like, who brought these guys up? Nobody teach them about stranger danger. You know, you're, you're at work there, you're doing your thing. Somebody walks through the office and says, come on, follow me, and bang, leave the keyboard and go. Straight after him. It just seems weird. We're at a significant disadvantage reading this story if we don't know a little bit about the culture of discipleship that there would have been in Jesus' time. Very quickly, Jesus is a teacher, we've said that. He, he's a rabbi is the word the, the Jewish community would have used. But, but the thing is, Jesus is not in any way unique in that regard. There were loads of rabbis. There were people who went around teaching their interpretation of, of God and God's ways. As well as loads of rabbis, there were loads of disciples They were like the apprentices of a particular rabbi. So if a kid was showing flair at school, 10 A stars at GCSE, straight A's at A level, that kid is the kind of kid who could apply to be with a rabbi. Now, a rabbi is not quite the same as what we think of in a teacher or university professor, because... In our culture, if a teacher or a professor teaches their curriculum well, their job is done. That's what we mean by a teacher or professor. But a rabbi is different. When a rabbi takes you on as their disciple, they're gonna share their life with you too, not just their teaching. And their invitation goes something like this. They're saying, if you come to be my disciple, I think you could learn from me. Not just what I know, but you could learn to do what I do. I think you could be like me. That's the invitation. Now come and be my disciple. Do you see now why Andrew and Simon dropped their, their nets? They're fishermen means they didn't get 10 A-stars at TCSE or strings of A's at A-level. They're school leavers who went back to work with their dad in the family trade to get up every morning at 5 a.m. to push out the boat and to haul in some fish and then to do it again tomorrow and every day after that. That's who they are. And now the rabbi comes down the beach and he's not looking for 10A stars at GCSE or four A's at A level. And he says, fellas, do you want to come and follow me? Wow. It's an invitation they thought they would never, ever hear. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. And, and do you know the funny part of this? the bit I love about this is these guys, I think, are bowled over because a rabbi has chosen them to be his disciples. They don't even know who he is yet. They think he's like a rabbi. He's not any old rabbi. He's the king. Folks, you might be listening to this and you might be thinking, that's a very interesting history lesson Uh, Very interesting to see what Jesus was up to in those days. This is no history lesson. This isn't about what Jesus was doing many, many years ago. This is about here and now. It's about you and it's about today. Flick back one page in your Bible with me. very famous passage. We're at the start of Mark's gospel, but by flicking back, you're at the end of Matthew's. So Matthew has told the whole story of Jesus, of his life, his death, his resurrection. And here we have Jesus appearing to his disciples just before he goes back to his father. Verse 18, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you know what I think he's saying? I'm the king. It's been hard to see it because I've looked like a Galilean peasant these last three years. I've just allowed the the Romans to nail me to a cross, but I'm the king because I've risen from the dead. And because I'm the king, here's what I want you to do. Go and make disciples of all nations. I want to stop right there. There's there's a whole lot in these verses, but we don't have time. Do you see what he's doing? He's taken the guys who are his disciples. Three years they've been on the road with him. They have graduated from his phase one, at least, of his ministry training. And he says to them, now go and invite others. Everyone. Don't stop till you've reached every nation. Every man, woman boy girl every time every place they too are to be my disciples they're to be my apprentices folks maybe you feel like you've you've never heard this before i've heard about asking jesus to forgive my sins i've heard that he'll give me eternal life folks those things are are so important and they're absolutely the case. The problem is they're not the full story. They leave out Jesus' call on your life. He's calling you today, whoever you are, to follow him. That bit about the rabbi, you know where he calls the disciples and he he says to them that they're not just to learn stuff, but they're to become like him. Did that surprise you? that Jesus would approach people and say to them, "I I want you to be like me? I think it probably will have. It's a huge part of the story of God that we just don't seem to understand. You see, this is the whole point of being a human being. It's to look like Jesus. Do you remember we thought about this? Well, you won't remember. Well, you might, you might. Genesis, a few years ago, the creation account. Do you remember we did that stuff where it talks about God creating us? And we're told in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. You are made in the image of God. Now, that, that Hebrew word, there's a Hebrew word there at Selim that's translated to give us image. That won't mean a whole lot to you. Well, it might, sorry. There might be a Hebrew scholar here. Forgive me. But the, the Greek word, when they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into a Greek Old Testament, here's the word that they used to translate it. Do you recognize that? Icon? Do you, icons don't get a great press in churches like ours, okay? I, I don't think many Presbyterians have grown up with using icons. I didn't. I used to think, I'll tell you what I thought. I thought an icon was something that distracted people from God. And then I read up a wee bit on what icons actually are. A good icon is not something that draws your eye away from God. A good icon is a, a picture, a piece of art that you look at, and a well-drawn icon draws your eye to the piece of art, but then through it to the reality beyond. It draws you to something so that you can think of, see and reflect on on God. You're an icon. And so am I. We're to catch the eye of our friends, our neighbors, people around us. They're to look to us, but look beyond us and see God. God. That's what you and I have been created for. Folks, this is where we need to be a little bit careful. The fall happened. The icons cracked. I'd love to be a much better image, image of God than I actually am. But the deal's never been changed. This is still the invitation. So there's only ever been one perfect icon in the world. Paul tells us Colossians 1. He is the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Paul tells us, talks about Jesus as the perfect icon a number of times. But he also talks about how Jesus is making us, restoring us into the icon. Hold that for a second and come back with me now to Mark chapter 1. When Jesus says, Come, follow me. He's saying, you can be like me. I'm the perfect image of God. But if you allow me, I'll restore the image of God in you. You are the icon that my father wants in the world to draw people to him. Folks, it's staggering. Did you have any idea of the scale of your call. I'm nearly done, but if if that Greek and Hebrew is not quite your cup of tea, I'll give you something that might be easier to remember. Uh, I was chatting to a, a friend um, in the congregation about a year ago, or within the last year, um, about a sermon I'd preached here on the subject of Christian giving. And the, and the friend said to me that they'd had a conversation with their wife in the car on the way home. And she had said, she said she liked it, he told me. It sounded Jesus-y. Now, the grammar's not very strong there, but you might have a sense of what she's saying. I tell you that story not to impress, me, impress you with my preaching because you know how ordinary that can be and not to impress you with me as a person because I'm 47 years old and that's the first time somebody has ever used that phrase of anything that I've said. So that's that's not a great track record. Why do I tell you? I tell you because I love it and because it's what I was made for and because it's what you were made for. I was made to say jesus words, to do, do Jesus-y things, to generally be jesus and so were you. Folks, that is the call of Jesus Christ. And we're sitting here this morning, and as I was typing this sermon this week, I was left with a sense that I can't do it. I'm not good enough. There's nothing Jesus y about me. To which Jesus says, Don't worry about it. I know that. I know you can't do it. But I'll do it in you and through you. You see, He's the King, and He wants to bring us home into His kingdom. And if we come, he'll turn us into citizens who shine for him beyond the borders into the whole world. Throughout this series, we're going to learn much, much more about that. But today, I want you to hear this call of Jesus. Come, follow me. It's about here and now. It's about you today. If you've never started that journey, and you maybe don't know how to, I'd love to talk to you about that. And so would, so would your friends who already know Jesus. Set you a challenge. If, if God's challenging you about that today, talk to somebody or text somebody or email them before the day's over. Set up a conversation. Get some help to find your way back into the kingdom of God. Let's pray.